You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 390th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and Tracy won't be joining us for this episode. We've been having some technical difficulties recording with both of us. We think it's the microphone, so while uh, we are waiting for a new microphone. I'm just going to go ahead and record this episode solo so that we can get it out to you, but we'll go ahead and anticipate that with the next show, um, Tracy will be able to rejoin us. Okay, well, as you guys will recall, we used the last episode to set the stage for the Battle of Sabine Pass, which took place in East Texas on September 8, 1863. Major General Nathaniel Banks, the commander of the Federal's Department of the Gulf, wanted to recapture the port of Galveston, but rather than attacking the place directly, he decided that an indirect approach would work best. To that end, Banks chose Sabine Pass as the spot to begin his invasion of Texas. As Banks envisioned it, the invasion of Texas would fall into place like a row of dominoes once the landing at Sabine Pass was successfully accomplished. From Sabine Pass, the Federals would move inland to Beaumont, then march west along the line of the Texas and New Orleans Railroad to Liberty, and then to Houston. And once in possession of Houston, the Federals would advance down the line of the Houston and Galveston Railroad and approach Galveston from the rear. Banks knew that after recapturing Galveston between its port and the rail hub at Houston, the Federals would have control of coastal Texas. Well, the plan was logical and well thought out and seemed to have every prospect of success. The landing at Sabine Pass was merely the first step in the invasion plan, and as we said last time, Banks was confident his forces would have little problem capturing the pass, since they had done it once before, a year earlier in September 1862. So, all of that's to say that Nathaniel Banks didn't expect to have any problem with the first step 
of his invasion of Texas, that is, the landing at Sabine Pass. He had consulted with the Navy, which had repeatedly assured him that the Confederate fort guarding the pass could be easily taken, and they'd even assigned Lieutenant Frederick Crocker to command the naval force that would support the Army's attack. Now, Crocker knew the target area as well as anyone since he had been in command of the force that had sailed up the pass and captured Sabine City in September 1862. However, as we mentioned near the end of the last show, Crocker's easy success then had been misleading and not a true test of the Confederate defenses at Sabine Pass. In fact, the rudimentary fort that Crocker had captured was no longer being used by the rebels. They had replaced it with another fortification, which was better sighted to contest another attempt by the Yankees to come up by the pass. Well, nevertheless, the naval officers Banks consulted were, quote-unquote, perfectly confident of success. And so, so far as Banks could judge, Sabine Pass was the perfect spot to begin his invasion of Texas. Not that Banks would direct the operation in person. No, instead he placed Major General William Buell Franklin in charge of the roughly 15 to 20,000 army troops that were to form the core of the expedition. Now, Franklin's name will probably be familiar to longtime listeners, since before this he had commanded a division and a corps in the Army of the Potomac. By the time of the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, he had risen to command of the Left Grand Division under Ambrose Burnside. However, after the disaster at Fredericksburg, Burnside blamed Franklin for the defeat, accusing him of disobeying orders, and he demanded that Franklin be removed from the army. But instead of dismissing Franklin, Abraham Lincoln instead relieved Burnside of his command. Well, although Franklin eventually avoided formal censure, the dispute with Burnside almost destroyed his career. He was taken off active duty for a lengthy period, and was finally reassigned to the Department of the Gulf to serve under Banks, where he assumed command of the 19th Corps in August 1863. Well, Banks held a series of discussions with the Navy, and they arrived at a plan to get Franklin's Army Force ashore at Sabine Pass as efficiently and expeditiously as possible. As decided upon, the final plan was relatively simple. First, the gunboat USS Granite City would arrive off the pass on the afternoon of September 6th and display a light that night to mark the entrance. Second, the rest of Crocker's flotilla would rendezvous with Granite City late on the night of the 6th, and the combined force of four gunboats would make an attack on Fort Griffin at dawn on September 7th. The gunboats would have a small force of infantry soldiers on board to act as sharpshooters during the attack on the fort. 
The third and final part of the plan called for Franklin to arrive with the transports and the bulk of the infantry at midday on the 7th, when he would find Sabine Pass and Fort Griffin already in the hands of the Navy. Once Franklin landed the first wave of troops and secured Sabine City, he would march north up the railroad to Beaumont, and the campaign to conquer Texas would be underway. Unfortunately for the Federals, the plan to make a surprise attack against Sabine Pass at dawn on September 7th fell apart almost as soon as it began. Acting Master Charles Lampson, in command of Granite City, reached the entrance to the pass on the afternoon of the 6th as scheduled, but the Union warship on blockade duty that Lampson anticipated meeting there was nowhere to be seen. Although the blockader had merely sailed off to replenish her supply of coal, Lampson began to worry that the enemy might have had a hand in the ship's disappearance. As evening approached, Lampson's imagination began to run wild, and he eventually convinced himself that he had seen the notorious Confederate commerce raider CSS Alabama lurking in the distance. To escape this imaginary threat, Lampson took Granite City and fled eastward up the coast in the darkness, leaving no light at the entrance to Sabine Pass. Uh, unaware of Granite City's deviation from the plan, Crocker sailed the other gunboats back and forth along the dark Texas coast on the night of September 6th, looking in vain for the light that would mark the entrance to the pass. Dawn on the morning of the 7th found Crocker and the other gunboats off the entrance to a pass, but it was Calcasieu Pass, about 30 miles east of Sabine Pass. Well, disgusted and tired, Crocker finally met up with Granite City and correctly dismissed Lampson's supposed encounter with Alabama as nonsense. But now Crocker had a real problem because he hadn't made the dawn attack on Sabine Pass that was called for in the plan. Well, meanwhile, General Franklin and 20 transports full of army troops were steaming towards Sabine Pass from Louisiana under the erroneous assumption that Crocker and the Union gunboats had already attacked at dawn and seized control of the pass and captured the rebel fort. Well, Crocker realized that if anything from the original plan was to be salvaged, his force would have to intercept the rest of the expedition so that everyone could do a reset, wait out the night off the entrance to the pass, and then the gunboats could make an attack at dawn the following day, on the morning of the 8th. So, to stop the rest of the expedition, Crocker placed his four gunboats in a net extending out from the shore, but, as it turned out, his net was a leaky one, since Franklin and the transports sailed around the net's end and reached Sabine Pass at about 11 o'clock on the morning of September 7th. By now, USS Cayuga, 
the blockader whose absence had spooked Lamson, had returned to her station off the entrance to Sabine Pass and informed Franklin that the pass and the fort were still in Confederate hands and that Crocker's gunboats had never even shown up. One can imagine Franklin's state of mind when, at around 9 o'clock that night, Crocker finally arrived on the scene and met up with him. As Franklin and Crocker sorted out what had happened, they realized that by this time it was clear that, that any attack would have lost the element of surprise, since the Confederates couldn't have helped but notice all the activity off the entrance to the pass. Nevertheless, the two men were confident that with such an overwhelming force, they could still easily complete their objectives and get the Texas campaign off to a successful start. To that end, it was agreed that Crocker would steam up the pass with his gunboats and make the attack on the fort the next morning, the morning of the 8th, which was 24 hours after originally called for, but they thought better late than never. As we mentioned in the last show, the Confederate fort that Crocker and his gunboats would face on September 8th was not the same one he had overcome so easily a year earlier in 1862. That fort had been abandoned by the rebels, and a new one, Fort Griffin, had been built at a site a bit north of the old one. In other words, just a bit farther up inside the pass. Situated on the west side of the pass, not far from Sabine City, Fort Griffin had a triangular shape and was designed to fit along the shore at a point of land that jutted out into the waters of the pass near the northern end of an oyster shell reef. That oyster shell reef divided the pass into two channels. The western one, nearest the fort, was called the Texas Channel while the eastern one was called the Louisiana Channel. Besides being able to fire enemy ships over in the Louisiana Channel, Fort Griffin was ideally suited so that the six guns it was designed to hold could fire down the Texas Channel at any Yankee ships steaming up that side of the pass. The flip side of that was that an enemy warship steaming up the Texas Channel wouldn't be able to fire her broadside at the fort, but would only be able to return the fort's fire with a cannon that was located in her bow. Uh, Fort Griffin was of earthen construction, although portions of its walls were reinforced with railroad iron. As we mentioned last week, the Confederate defenders consisted of the Davis Guards, a military and social organization formed in Houston before the war that had named itself after Jefferson Davis, who was not then the Confederate president, obviously, but he was still a well-known Mexican war hero and former Secretary of War. So, consisting primarily of Irish dock workers and laborers from Houston and Galveston, 
the Davis Guard had been mustered into the Confederate service as Company F of the 1st Texas Heavy Artillery. At Sabine Pass on September 8, 1863, Lieutenant Dick Dowling was in command of Fort Griffin while the company's captain was away on official business. Dowling had been born in County Galway, Ireland in 1837. A little is known of his early life except that his parents had left Ireland for America sometime after 1846 with their seven children, of whom Dick was the eldest, and they'd all settled in New Orleans. In antebellum New Orleans, the Irish occupied one of the lowest rungs of the socio-economic ladder, and newly arrived families like the Dowlings would have faced difficult living conditions. It's therefore understandable that some of the children, including Dick and at least one brother and sister, ended up making their way to Texas, coming through Galveston and eventually settling in Houston. There, in 1857, Dick married Annie Odlum, whose father was a prominent Irish veteran of the Texas Revolution. The marriage elevated Dowling's status both socially and economically, and Dick had decided shortly before his marriage to enter the saloon business. His first business venture was an establishment called The Shades, It had a bar on the first floor and a billiard parlor on the second. The Shades appears to have been a success from the start, and by 1860, Dowling had expanded his growing commercial interest to include an additional saloon in Houston and also a liquor importing business in Galveston. He also found the time and energy to become a charter member of Houston Hook and Ladder Company No. 1, and he also joined a militia company, the Houston Light Artillery. But when most of the members of the Houston Light Artillery parted ways in 1860, Dowling joined a new company called the Davis Guards. The company's ranks were composed uh, primarily, as we said, of Irish dock workers and laborers from Houston and Galveston. So it's not surprising that the Davis Guard were a rowdy bunch, and since these men formed one of Dowling's core saloon clientele, it's also not really surprising that the popular proprietor rose quickly in their ranks to become first lieutenant of the company, which was commanded by his wife's uh, uncle, Captain Frederick Odlum. Well, the members of the Davis Guard didn't see action for quite a while after the start of the Civil War. They weren't even formally accepted into Confederate service until the fall of 1861, and that's when they were formally designated Company F of the 1st Texas Heavy Artillery. But they were still known to everyone as the Guards, and they found themselves spending what seemed like endless months of pointless drilling in Houston and Galveston. Uh, Unpleasant as it seemed at the time, though, all of that training ultimately paid off. As later events would prove, their ability to handle their guns under difficult conditions eventually rivaled that of the best units in either the Federal or Confederate armies.
The members of the Davis Guard liked and respected Odlum and Dowling. That didn't mean the guards were easy to command, though. On the contrary, they were a rambunctious bunch who almost seemed to worship brawling and rowdy behavior. In fact, the guards' antics led to a great deal of friction with the Confederate military authorities in Texas. In their first year of service, the unit was temporarily disbanded for, quote, mutinous and disorderly conduct, end quote. And on another occasion, after participating in the Battle of Galveston at the beginning of 1863, the guards celebrated the victory with an unfortunate combination of cannon fire and alcohol. The result was that they suffered half as many casualties celebrating the battle as they had suffered in the fighting itself. Well, soon after that incident, the Confederate authorities in Houston decided to transfer the guards to Sabine Pass, which was an out-of-the-way location where it was hoped the only trouble they might cause would be for the enemy. As they practiced their loading and firing drills almost endlessly in the heat of the summer of 1863, Dowling and the men of the Davis Guard watched the construction of the new fort at Sabine Pass, Fort Griffin, with great interest. Although the fort was designed to accommodate six guns, the military engineers who supervised its construction didn't initially have that many guns to move into the fort. Major Julius Kellersburg, the chief Confederate Army engineer for East Texas, searched high and low throughout the area, but only turned up two 24-pounders and two brass howitzers. That left the fort two guns short and without any heavy guns. The problem was solved only when a local resident mentioned that two big artillery pieces had been buried in the remains of the old abandoned fort. Well, after probing the swampy ground with long poles, a pair of 32-pounders were discovered. But at first examination, the condition of the guns wasn't promising. They had been spiked and were also filthy and rusted, of course. Nevertheless, Kellersburg had them taken to Galveston, and using the workshops there he was able to repair them. Arriving back at Fort Griffin, Kellersburg found the men of the Davis Guard eagerly awaiting these additions to their arsenal. And to the Major's immense relief, test firings of the repaired guns were successful. And to assist the guards in accurately aiming the two 24-pounders and the two 32-pounders, Kellersburg painted a white line down the barrel of each gun. He then had white poles planted as aiming stakes across both channels of the pass. And with practice, the gunners were able to range their cannon on the poles sticking out of the water, and by doing so, they were prepared to throw extremely accurate fire at any enemy ships steaming up the pass. As we'll see, this preparation would be critical to the outcome of the battle that was about to take place.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Dawn on September 8th, 1863, found a very busy scene at the entrance to Sabine Pass. Dick Dowling realized that he and his fewer than 50 men were in a perilous position. But with Captain Odlum absent, Dowling's orders did permit him to abandon the fort and retreat if confronted by a superior enemy force. Well, the over two dozen Yankee ships at the entrance to the pass, along with who knew how many soldiers on board, certainly seemed to qualify as a superior force by any definition. But nonetheless, Dowling wasn't prepared to give up Fort Griffin without a fight. In an unconventional move, Dowling decided to put the question to a vote. No records were kept uh, that tell us precisely what the discussion among Dowling and his men was like, or what arguments were ultimately used to persuade them to stay and serve their guns in the face of such long odds, but it's likely that there was some mention of the Alamo and the Texans who had died there less than 30 years before. In fact, it's certain that the Alamo was on the minds of Dowling and his men, since Dowling's official after-action report states that the men formally adopted the phrase liberty or death as their motto. And those were the closing words in the last letter that William Travis sent from the Alamo. Well, having reached their decision and drawn their own line in the sand, so to speak, the determined men of the Davis Guard made their final preparations and awaited the federal onslaught. At about 6.30 a.m. on the morning of September 8th, Frederick Crocker took the gunboat USS Clifton and deliberately steamed up the pass to within easy range of the Confederate fort, inviting its fire 
so that he could get a better idea of the range and accuracy of the rebel guns. However, since there was no response, he decided to anchor and fire some of his longer-range guns to see if he could provoke the fort's defenders into some return fire. By 7.30, Clifton had fired over two dozen shells at Fort Griffin, but the Confederates didn't fire a shot in return. Well, Crocker was a bit baffled by the lack of a rebel response, but he was left with no option except to withdraw with no more information on the enemy capabilities than he had before his reconnaissance. So at 8 a.m., Crocker signaled for the rest of the ships to come over the bar at the entrance to Sabine Pass, but it took until almost four that afternoon for just seven of the troop transports to get across the bar and into position to cooperate with an attack by Crocker's gunboats. The other transports and supply ships were still outside the bar when the battle commenced. The original plan, prepared before the expedition even left Louisiana, was for Crocker's gunboats, with the Army sharpshooters on board, to make the attack alone, and then once the rebel fort had been neutralized, the transports would land their troops. However, that plan had been based on the assumption of a surprise dawn attack. Well, since surprise was obviously now impossible, and the capabilities of the Confederates in Fort Griffin were still a mystery, the plan was changed on the fly, so that now the army would be an active participant in the attack. While the gunboats attacked the fort, the army was supposed to land a party of 500 men under the command of Brigadier General Godfrey Weitzel. And once on dry land, this force was to move rapidly up the west side of the pass and assist in driving the rebel defenders out of the fort. The only thing left for the federal commanders to determine was the spot where the troops would be landed. And so at around 1 p.m., Crocker, along with Generals Franklin and Weitzel, went up the pass in a small boat to investigate potential landing sites. None was very promising uh, because of the marshy ground and thick, deep mud that bordered the western side of the pass. And in the end, the three officers decided that the only practical landing point was just above the site of the old Confederate fort that Crocker had captured a year earlier. At that spot, the water seemed to be of sufficient depth that the boats could pull reasonably close to the shore and land the troops. Well, by the time Crocker and the generals returned from their scout of potential landing sites, it was already mid-afternoon. Time was running out. If an attack was going to be made, it would need to be started soon. Finally, around four o'clock, with Weitzel's landing party having been loaded aboard the transport General Banks, all four gunboats moved into position, and everyone waited anxiously for Crocker to give the signal that would start the attack. Crocker's four gunboats were all former merchant vessels, 
either purchased by the Navy at the start of the war or captured when attempting to run the blockade. In other words, none of these vessels were first-rate warships. But despite the improvised nature of some of the ships, it was believed the little squadron would be more than adequate to deal with a Confederate fort. Crocker had designated the largest of the vessels, Clifton, as his flagship. Clifton was a 210-foot side-wheeler armed with four 32-pounders. Crocker's plan for attacking Fort Griffin called for the gunboat Sachem to steam rapidly up the Louisiana, or eastern side of the channel, followed by Arizona. Meanwhile, Crocker, aboard Clifton, would steam up the Texas, or western side of the channel, very slowly, waiting for the enemy to respond to Sachem's and Arizona's movement, which was intended mainly as a diversion. Crocker meant from the beginning to make the main attack on the fort himself with Clifton. He planned to dash up the Texas Channel in Clifton the moment the rebels' guns were turned upon Sachem and Arizona. While Clifton, Sachem, and Arizona engaged with the fort, the fourth gunboat, Granite City, would screen the Federal infantry as the soldiers splashed ashore at the agreed-upon landing site. As the Yankee gunboats started to move up the pass, Dowling and his men in Fort Griffin were immediately on alert. Seeing that the two ships over in the Louisiana Channel were approaching at the fastest speed, Dowling quickly issued orders for the gunners to aim their cannon at the pre-positioned poles in that channel. When Sachem, a 121-foot screw steamer armed with four 32-pounders and one 30-pound rifle, approached within 1,200 yards of the fort, the Confederate gunners opened up on her. A brisk exchange commenced as the Yankee gunboat returned the enemy fire, but when Sachem reached a point about halfway up the oyster bank separating the two channels, a Confederate shot slammed through her hull, hit her engine, and burst her boiler. The violent rupture of the boiler sent clouds of scalding hot steam billowing through the engine room and interior of the ship, killing or horribly burning anyone in its path. Acting Lieutenant Amos Johnson, who was in command of Sachem, reported that the hit on the ship's steam engine killed or seriously wounded 32 men. Arizona, a paddle-wheeler carrying a mixed battery of 10 guns, was steaming up the Louisiana Channel behind Sachem, but when Arizona's commander saw what had happened to Sachem, he lost his nerve completely and withdrew back down the channel. Meanwhile, when Sachem and Fort Griffin began exchanging fire, Crocker realized that all the rebel guns were trained on the Louisiana Channel as he had hoped would happen, so he gave the order for full speed ahead and Clifton began her dash up the Texas Channel. However, since the Confederate engineers had deliberately sighted Fort Griffin on a point of land, so it would be dead ahead of any enemy ships coming up the Texas Channel, 
that meant that only Clifton's bow gun could fire on the fort as the ship made its dash up the channel. But as she reached the halfway mark up the Texas Channel, the diversion in the other channel had already fallen apart, which meant all the Confederate guns could now swing over to target the oncoming Clifton. One of those Confederate shells severed Clifton's tiller rope, which meant she would no longer respond to her helm, and she ran aground about 500 yards below the fort. Crocker had always intended to run Clifton as close to the enemy fort as possible, and he knew there was a risk of grounding her, but he had hoped that if that happened, his ship would be close enough to Fort Griffin that the combination of Clifton's guns and the fire of the Federal soldiers on board acting as sharpshooters would still be able to disable the rebel artillery or at least chase the enemy gunners away from their pieces while Weitzel's detachment of infantry attacked the fort from land. But, as events turned out, Clifton had run aground too far from the fort. The rifle fire from the soldiers on board wasn't accurate enough to drive the rebels away from their guns, and although Clifton was stopped more or less broadside to the fort, which meant she could bring more of her cannon to bear on the Confederates, it also meant the stranded ship was more vulnerable to incoming fire. Shortly after she ran aground, as shell after shell from the fort slammed into her, Clifton's boiler was hit. As had happened with Sachem, clouds of scalding hot steam killed or wounded crewmen below decks and even chased soldiers off the upper deck so that some of them had to jump into the water of the pass to avoid injury. At this point, with shell after shell from the fort hammering into the stricken Clifton, Crocker knew that his only hope was to hang on until Weitzel's troops had landed and assaulted and captured Fort Griffin. Accordingly, Clifton's gun crews continued firing from their disabled ship for almost a half hour. While Crocker was down amongst the gun crews, directing their fire and encouraging them with his presence, he was approached by one of his officers, who informed him that he considered further resistance to be useless, and he had taken it upon himself to haul down the flag to signal the ship's surrender. Well, Crocker was outraged by his subordinate's presumption, and he immediately ordered the flag to be hoisted again. But eventually he had to concede that the man was right, and that neither the ship nor the men could take much more punishment. Well, looking back down the pass, he could see that the army troops hadn't even been landed, and that Granite City, with the hapless Lampson still in command, obviously wasn't coming to his assistance. Meanwhile, over in the Louisiana Channel, Sachem had anchored but was out of the fight, and Arizona, as we said, had retreated. And so, seeing no alternative, Crocker reluctantly ordered the white flag of surrender hoisted. Over on Sachem, when Johnson saw the white flag flying on Clifton, 
he ordered one hoisted on his ship also. The battle was over. Dowling checked the time and later recorded that from the instant the fort fired the first shot until the surrender of the two Yankee gunboats, only 45 minutes had passed. Then, checking each of his gun positions to see how his men had fared in the battle, Dowling was amazed to find no one had been hurt. As Captain Odlum would report, quote, Our loss was, strictly and positively speaking, nobody was hurt. Not a single man received even a scratch, and the fort but slightly injured, and the contents entirely uninjured. Odlum went on to call the battle, quote, a glorious and honorable little affair, end quote, and said, quote, it does really seem that Providence has kindly favored us in this affair. Well, the side that Providence seemed not to have favored in the battle, the Union, not surprisingly viewed the affair quite differently. After receiving news of the battle, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells wrote with obvious restraint that, quote, the disastrous results and total failure of the Sabine Pass expedition is a source of regret. End quote. All in all, the U.S. Navy lost the two gunboats, Clifton and Sachem, together with their crews and the soldiers on board acting as sharpshooters. But the actual number of federal casualties is difficult to pin down due to the large number of missing. However, Dowling's report stated the Confederates had captured 350 prisoners, which is probably accurate, and Dowling also reported burying 28 enemy dead. But this doesn't account for the number of men whose bodies were lost in the waters of the pass, so the total number of federal casualties, killed, wounded, captured, and missing, was probably close to 400 men. Confederate officers in Texas had difficulty restraining their rhetoric about the incredible victory achieved by Dowling and his men. Magruder told Richmond that, quote, This seems to me to be the most extraordinary feat of the war. And then a Major Leon Smith, who apparently arrived at the fort in time to witness the surrender of the Yankee gunboats, could barely curb his enthusiasm in his report declaring, quote, For one hour and a half, a most terrific bombardment of grape, canister, and shell was directed upon our devoted, heroic little band within the fort. The Davis Guards, one and all, God bless them. The honor of our country was in their hands, and they nobly sustained it. Every man stood at his post, withstanding the murderous fire that was poured upon us from every direction. Dick Dowling's own report was short and relatively modest. He wrote, quote, All my men behaved like heroes. Not a man flinched from his post. 
Dowling also gave special recognition to Private Michael McKernan, whom he credited with firing the shot that disabled Sachem. News of the Davis Guard's remarkable victory at Sabine Pass spread throughout the Confederacy like wildfire. The late summer-slash-early fall of 1863 was a time of great stress in every corner of the Confederacy. After Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, Grant's capture of Vicksburg, and Bragg's loss of Tennessee. So southern newspapers were in search of something good to say, and they trumpeted the news of the victory at Sabine Pass. From Richmond, the Davis Guards received the thanks of the Confederate Congress, and Jefferson Davis extended to each of the Guards, quote, the gratitude and admiration of their country. Well, meanwhile, back in Texas, money was raised for the purpose of awarding silver medals to the victors of the Battle of Sabine Pass. On one side was engraved a Maltese cross and the letters DG for Davis Guard, and on the other side were the words Sabine Pass, September 8, 1863. While those medals would become prized possessions, of more immediate value was the fact that because Dowling and his men turned back the invasion of Texas planned by Nathaniel Banks, the Federals would waste most of another year attempting to capture the Lone Star State. First, Banks would send an expedition down to the mouth of the Rio Grande and attempt to fight his way up the Texas coast to Galveston. But when that campaign proved too slow in producing results, Banks would come back to his original goal of striking at East Texas, this time with a campaign up the Red River in Louisiana. However, as we'll see in a future podcast story arc, that campaign which never even reached Texas soil, was an absolute disaster for the Federals. So, in winning the Battle of Sabine Pass, Dick Dowling and his men significantly aided the Confederate war effort. They also demonstrated that battles aren't always decided on the basis of which side has the most men or most cannon. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. Although I have to admit that we don't really have a recommendation for you this time. Although we'll give an honorable mention to North and South Magazine, Volume 8, Number 6, which not only has a good article about the battle, but an excellent set of maps showing the area of East Texas we've talked about, as well as showing Sabine Pass in some detail and the movements of the Federal ships during the battle. Uh, We'll put the reference up to that back issue of North and South on the website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap things up, we'll give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to John M., Jim H., Russ G., David P., Stephen O., 
David A, Wesley K, David M, Ryan W, and Randy M. And thanks to Chuck M and John G for their donations. I think that's it. So we'll say thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll start in on the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.